Okay, uh, we're in Luke 16. Brief look back last week. Jesus gives three parables. The Pharisees are murmuring because he's welcoming tax collectors, social outcasts, prostitutes and sinners, religious outcasts into a relationship with him. And it upsets them. For them, keeping the law, that is the primary way of relating to God. And it's upsetting to them that Jesus is allowing lawbreakers into fellowship with him. He's this representative, at least so he claims, of the kingdom of God. He's this representative of God, sent by God. And he's upset that he is allowing these people who are blatant lawbreakers into a relationship with him. And so he tells three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons, that all communicate the same thing. The reason Jesus is welcoming tax collectors and sinners is because God goes after those people. God pursues everyone who's lost, regardless of why they're lost. If they're wandering, if they just don't know, if they're rebellious, God doesn't care. He pursues everyone who's far away from him. And because Jesus is sent by him, he does the same thing. This week, Jesus, he just plows ahead. Remember the picture. There's these huge crowds following him that are mixed. You've got Pharisees, you've got disciples, you've got curious, you've got hostile. You've got, they're all mixed in together. So when Jesus changes audience, it's, it's still everybody's hearing everything. So I don't want you to get too confused about um, the setting here. Chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples. So he was talking to the Pharisees. Now he's talking to the disciples. But everybody hears everything. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager said, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He said, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you too will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So probably the trickiest parable in the New Testament, because it seems like Jesus is holding up a dishonest guy and saying, act like him, do what he did. And for us, that that doesn't fit with anything that we know about Jesus. And this guy's called shrewd. And for many of us, shrewd has negative connotations. This all feels slippery to us. None of it feels good. The key to understanding it is to remember this is a parable. It has one point. Parables are fictional stories taken from real life that communicate a spiritual truth. The truth is verse 9. That's what Jesus says. Here's your takeaway. Here's, I told you this story so you would get this point. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, that may sound like you're buying your way into heaven and it creates this whole other issue. But that's the point of the parable. We'll, we get into the mud really quick in parables, when we're trying to make connections between every detail and something in reality. That's an allegory. That's not what this is. One primary point, Jesus tells a story that has color to it because that makes it sticky. So the details help us to remember it. It helps us to remember the point. And in this case, 
The surprise is what helps us remember the point. Nobody assumes that a master is going to commend someone who's stealing from him. If you were to go tomorrow and steal from your boss, most likely he's not going to come into your office and say, that was excellent, good work, which is what we see here. It's shocking, and that's why we remember it. So main truth, use the money, use the possessions that God has given to you now to secure your future in eternity. We'll come back to what that looks like in a second. So step back, parable. We've got an incredibly rich man. And he's got someone, a, a manager, your, my, your Bible may say steward, that's a very respectable and a very uh, important position. A lot of authority associated with being a manager or a steward. He was a, he's a check signer. So any, any deals that this guy makes are binding. So he, his responsibility is to manage his master's money. And whatever deals he makes, again, those things are binding. The guy's terrible at his job, and so he gets fired. He's inept. We don't know why. He's, the, Jesus says he wastes his money. He wastes his master's money. It's the same word we saw of the younger son last week, wasting his estate. That we don't, He squandered it. We don't know what he did. He's bad at his job, so he gets fired. And the master says, I need a final accounting. I need to know where we stand. You've got to bring me the books. And the guy's freaking out because he goes, I, I'm not going to get a, a good recommendation from him, so I'm not going to be able to be a manager anymore. Nobody else is going to hire me to be a steward of their stuff. Because this guy is not going to give me a good recommendation. I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. I'm about to be jobless and homeless. He would have lived at this guy's estate. So he's about to be out of luck in all kinds of ways. And he's desperate. And so he comes up with this idea. I know what I can do. All of these other rich people who owe my master money. So you've got the rich owing to the super rich. The quantities here are huge. So this is you've got rich people who are borrowing from someone who's super rich. And so he calls these rich people in and he says, tell me what how much you owe. And he starts striking the bills down with the idea being after I've helped you, then you're going to help me once I'm fired. I'm doing a favor for you with the intention that once I'm terminated, you're going to then pay me back. You're going to give me a soft landing spot. He's dishonest. That's what the Bible says, the dishonest manager. So the master is, becomes aware of this. And again, we think he's going to ream him, and he doesn't. He commends him, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness, for his cleverness. The idea of shrewdness is rooted in the idea of wisdom. It's, it's practical knowledge. It's being able to read a situation and know how to move forward. That's what wisdom is. It's, it's knowledge in action. So this guy, he understands what's going on. He takes advantage of the circumstances to secure his future. That's what he's being commended for. It's like the master comes in and he says, well, you you played the game well. You understood the rules and you played it well. And so I'm commending you for that. He's not commending him for being dishonest. He's not commending him for lying. He's not commending him for cheating. He's commending him for being shrewd, which is what Jesus holds up for us and says, that's how y'all need to be. As well, just like the steward, your time is limited. So the steward realizes he, from when he's given notice to when he's actually terminated, there's some there's some period of time where he's still working. It's probably why everybody makes you pack up your stuff immediately now, right? You can do some damage once you know you're going to be fired. And that's what this guy does. He knows he's about to be fired, but he's got a little bit of time where he still has all of this authority as the steward, as the manager of the estate. 
And so he recognizes that situation. Again, he knows, I still have authority, and the things that I do now, my master can't undo. It's binding. So he realizes in a limited time, with the massive amount of authority he still has, I can secure my future after I'm fired. And what Jesus is saying to us is, y'all are in the same boat. You're not about to be fired, but your time is limited. Our time here on this, it's, we, there, there's an expiration date for all of us, and we don't know when it is. But we know it's coming at some point. We've got a limited time. God has given all of us resources. Here he's talking specifically about money. He's giving us money. He's giving us possessions. And what Jesus is saying is do something with that that lasts long term. Recognize your time here is short. Recognize what God has given to you and use what he's given to you here in this temporary situation to secure your permanent situation. Does that mean you buy your way into heaven? No. Are we saved by giving? No. Are we saved by generosity? No. We're saved by grace. We know that. However, salvation is a relational concept. I'm reconciled to God. I'm adopted into his family with the understanding that I'm going to take on the likeness of my father. And because God is generous, I should become generous as well. And so salvation does not, I'm not saved by giving. I'm not saved by being generous, but giving or being generous is a reflection of the fact that I have been saved. That I have been adopted into the family of this incredibly generous father and I'm becoming more and more like him. Are we good? Y'all got that parable? Nice. You wouldn't tell me if you didn't. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? The, the implied answer is nobody will. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Nobody will. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to the Pharisees, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits Adultery. So there we go on. What, what is he talking about? How does he move from one thing to the next? So you've got these, Phar- these Pharisees who are there. Jesus calls them lovers of money. Literally, it says friends of money. Jesus says, use your money to make friends. And then he says the Pharisees are people who are friends with money. And they're mocking him. They murmured about him welcoming tax collectors and sinners. Now they're sneering. They're mocking. It's a more derisive term about his understanding of money. They're dismissing what he has to say, making fun of what he has to say. And he comes back at them. He challenges them. And the way he challenges them is he goes after their hearts, not their behaviors. So Pharisees are experts at keeping the rules. Nobody follows the law better than the Pharisees. In Luke eleven forty two, when Jesus is criticizing them, one of the things he says is, you tithe on all of your spices, mint, Dill, cumin, you you tithe all of that. What he's saying is everything that grows in your yard, you give a tenth of it. You don't just give a tenth of the wheat. You don't just give a tenth of the corn, the big stuff. You give a tenth of the smallest things as well. 
You don't just tithe on your paycheck. You tithe on your Christmas money and your birthday money and the money you find out in the middle of the street. That would be a modern parallel for us. Everything that comes in, you give, it, you give 10% back. These guys are great givers, technically. They're great givers, behavior, behaviorally. They do that. Well, they're good. What Jesus is saying, that, that looks great. People love that stuff. People love those external displays of righteousness. People love the fact that they get to bring all their stuff to the temple and everybody gets to see, look, I'm giving 10% of everything. God thinks it's an abomination. That's what that word is, detestable. He doesn't like any of it. It's hypocrisy to him because your hearts are far from him. It's not enough just to go through the mechanics of giving X percent. What he's looking for is your heart. Since the time of John, there's this whole new understanding of what it means to be invited into the kingdom of God. A new era dawned with John the Baptist, and people are beating down the door to get in. And the Pharisees are going, of course they are, because you don't require anything of them. Of course they're beating down the door to come in, because you allow tax collectors and sinners in. You're lax, you're permissive, you have no standards. Of course people are coming in, and Jesus says, you don't get it at all. Not one bit. For the, the law can't be done away with. The law, it's, it's not going to pass away. It can't pass away. Here's an example. Y'all think it's okay for a man to divorce a woman as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce. That's all you care about. It's Deuteronomy 25. As long as he gives her a sheet of paper that says she's divorced, y'all think it's okay. What I'm telling you is any man who divorces his wife with the intention of marrying someone else. They've broken the law. That's serial monogamy. That's just trading spouses. I'm divorcing her in order to get her. I already see somebody better, so I'm going to give her a certificate of divorce so I can marry this other woman. The letter of the law has been fulfilled. The spirit of the law has been violated. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm going for. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. You say, anyone who commits adultery has sinned. I say, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. He's going from external obedience and pressing it into their hearts. Y'all think it's okay because you're giving 10%. I'm saying no. Where's money in your heart? Are you serving it? Is it a tool for you? Or or are you worshiping it? Because you've got to choose. It's money or God. And just because you're giving, that doesn't mean that your heart is right towards money. And then he gives an an illustration. This is another parable. It's an illustration of this idea. Pressing beyond external obedience to our heart, particularly as it relates to money and possessions. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's not lassie. These are nasty, filthy, scavenging dogs. It's not your cute golden retriever. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here and you're in agony. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They've got the Old Testament. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So again, this idea of what what Jesus is illustrating, don't let externals fool you. Remember the mindset, rich equals favored by God, poor equals cursed by God. And so we've got the top 1% of the top 1%. This is the Sheik or Warren Buffett, whoever the, the top five, that's this guy, Lennon. Purple every day. He's having a feast every day. Last week we saw a wealthy man has a feast when his son comes home. That's like a once in a lifetime deal. Even the wealthy could only have feasts occasionally. This guy every day is having a feast. You can see the contrast between them here, between the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, we don't know his name. We know Lazarus' name. His name means he whom God has helped. And we see that at the end. So the idea, I'm listening to this story, and I'm hearing about this uber, super rich guy. And my assumption is, he's favored by God because there's no other way to get that rich unless God is for you. And I hear about this guy named Lazarus who's a beggar, and he's hungry, and he's in such sad shape that dogs come and torment him and lick his sores. He must be cursed by God big time. Because why else would God allow anybody that he cares about to live like that? And then we see they die and there's this huge reversal. The man who we think is favored by God winds up in H-E double hockey six. And Lazarus, who we see as cursed by God, winds up in what we know as heaven. Don't. This is a parable. Don't try to make... Decisions about what eternity looks like. But we know that they're in two separate places and there's no crossing from one to the other. And one's really bad and one's really good. And Lazarus, he never says anything. He's passive in this whole story. We don't know anything about him other than he was this wretched beggar. And in death, he's comforted. He's drawn into heaven. He's at Abraham's side. So there's, there's something righteous in him. Trusting the Lord on some level. And the rich man, we hear all kinds of stuff from him. And you can see his attitude. I think so what Jesus is saying. Most likely this rich guy, he probably gave. He probably tithed. He probably did all the prescribed offerings in, the, in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. All of the offerings and tithes that were required. He probably did all that. And what Jesus is saying, but he didn't have compassion for the guy who was right outside his gate. And that shows his heart. And we see, it, we see his heart in this exchange he has. With Abraham, you can see how selfish he is and how arrogant he is and how proud he is. He thinks Lazarus is his errand boy. Tell him to come and give me some water. Tell him to go back and tell my brothers that about all of this. And when Abraham says no, what does he do? He throws a temper tantrum. Rich people are used to being catered to. What do you mean? Nobody tells me no. Send him anyway. They've got the law and the prophets. That's not enough. He's used to getting what he wants. He knows Lazarus' name. How about that? So that means he's not unaware of his situation. The fact that he knows his name meant he knew his situation. He knew this guy who was outside of his gate. 
He wouldn't walk across the yard and now he wants Lazarus to cross this uncrossable chasm. The one who he wouldn't show mercy to, he's now saying, have him show mercy to me. It's a demonstration of his heart. That's what the, the picture here. This is not a parable about the end. It's not a parable about our eternal future. It's a parable that says the choices that you're making now affect where you're going to end up. And once you're dead, it's too late. It's not, it's not fixable. You can't remedy it at that point. All of that stuff is set. So rich man, sorry, you had good things in this life. You're not getting any good things now. And he's not in hell because he had good things. He's in hell because he never repented. Because he's proud and he's arrogant and he's hard-hearted. And even having someone rise from the dead, it's not, it's not going to work. People are not unrepentant because of a lack of evidence. It's not because they haven't seen enough signs. Because their heart's hard. And they don't recognize their need for the grace of God. And Lazarus did. And so that's why he's at Abraham's side. So what does this look like for us moving forward? I think where we live, the temptation, I've said this before, one of the primary strongholds in our community is money. The temptation to serve money is strong, it's subtle, and it's persistent. None of you have an altar to money in your house. But there's this pull for all of us to serve and worship money. And I actually think the rich man in Lazarus, that gets me. I'm not in the upper 1% of the 1% by any means, but I can develop this attitude that says, I've checked the boxes. I've given, we give every month to Stonebridge and we give every month to long-term missionaries. And I can say, well, I've done that. And so now the rest of this is mine. I spend five minutes out of every month thinking about giving and I spend 29 days and 23 hours and 55 minutes without that on my mind. I think there's this, again, subtle and strong and persistent pull to worship money. We've got these horizons that I think we look at when it comes to money. We've got now. And that's big and it's pressing on us. It weighs on us. It's braces. It's a mortgage. It's, your, it's gas. It's, your, it's all of that stuff that you feel. It's health insurance. All of those things that are screaming, pay me now. Or bad things are going to happen. And then out there is the future. And it's more distant and it it fades a little bit. It's fuzzier for us. For some of you, the future equals college fund. For some of you, future equals retirement. The the older we get, the, the more now and future collapse into one. The older we get, the more the, the closer those two horizons get. Does that make sense? And then way out in the future, super fuzzy, super faint, is eternity. Most of us, if we're honest, rarely, if ever, think about our possessions and our money in light of eternity. Many of you are probably like me, where you give, and then you kind of move on. You give, and then you jump immediately back to now in all of the things. All of the bills that have to be paid, all of the things that you have to do, or maybe even the things that you want to do. If you happen to be someone who has some extra money. And maybe what you want to do is something now or maybe it's for the future. But very few of us think about eternity on a regular basis. It's hard to do, I think. It's very difficult to keep, that, to keep those lenses on. What Jesus says is seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. 
He doesn't say the present's not important. He doesn't say the future's not important. He just says, if you can look at those things through the lens of eternity, then I'll help you with them. Otherwise, it's up to you. If you're doing it like this, then it's up to you to take care of now and the future. And just know the decisions that you make now will affect eternity. What Jesus says is, if you'll put eternity first, if you'll, I'm wearing contacts, if your contacts, if your glasses, if your perspective will be an eternal one, and you'll look at everything I've given you through the lens of forever, then I'll help you take care of now and the future. You don't have to do that on your own. I've got resources that you don't know about. Easy to say, hard to do. So here's what we're going to do as an experiment. Kim is going to pass out these buckets. One bucket per section. In each bucket is our $20 bills. And I want you to take one. I don't care how much money. I don't care. This is not about whether you need $20. I want everybody to take one. Not one per family. Take it. If you don't, the person next to you gets to elbow you in the stomach. I'm telling, I'm serious about this. Take your $20. Did you take some? All right, don't, there it is. We're going to check you on the way out. This is why I want you to take it. It's not because you need it. It's because it's not yours. And for many of us, that's what the hardest hurdle to get over when it comes to possessions. is recognizing that what I have is not mine. So I work pretty hard for it. And it's got my name on it. And so it's hard for me over time to remember everything I have as a gift. You know this $20 is a gift. You didn't do anything for it except come and sit down and pull it out of a bucket. Somebody else. That's, that's, the, that's the fruit of somebody else's labor, not yours. Somebody else put the money in that we're turning back out to you. So think about it like that. And for many of us, if somebody gives us something, somebody entrusts us with something, we take a little more care of it. If I lend you my car, you may drive a little more carefully than you would in your own car. And I want you to think about that with this money. I want you to, not in a bad way, I don't want you to feel burdened, but I want you to feel just that little bit of pressure. This isn't mine. I want to be a steward of this. And so I want you, my hope is over the next week, I want you to do something with that money through the lens of eternity. There's three options that I see. You may think of some more. One that we see in the parable of the steward is to eliminate debt. You can't really do that because nobody owes you. So that doesn't doesn't necessarily work for us. But we see that is one expression of generosity is to eliminate debt that someone owes. So that one will kind of set aside. The other two primary ones we see with Lazarus, it's taking care of somebody who's in need. And you can define taking care of in a very broad way. Blessing, serving someone who has less than you or someone who needs it. And the other we see in Luke 14, it's hospitality for people who can't pay you back. Some of you in your family, you've got 20 students. Did y'all take it? That's good. Y'all need to tell David Scott y'all took that money. I told him I was going to tell him. Y'all can follow up with him. Y'all need to follow up with me. So um, maybe in your family you say, the Hutchins, they've got four people in here. They may say, we've got $80. What do we want to do with that? Or they may do it separate. Your small group, you may pool it together and say, we've got $200. Let's do something together with that. Or you may want to do it separate. That doesn't matter to me. I just want you thinking, and I want you praying. Many of us, we never even think to pray about our money. We just don't. We give maybe automatically or not at all, but we don't necessarily think, if you're like me, you're not thinking the other 29 days of the month about your money in light of eternity. And so just saying to the Lord, all right, this is $20, it's a gift. What do you want me to do with it? And for some of you, it's going to free you up because it's not yours. And you're going to do stuff you would never do with your own money. 
Because you don't feel this pressure to be a good steward. And it's free for you. And you're like, I'm going to, yes. I'm going to, this is going to flow right through my hands. I'm not going to be sticky with this. And that's great. And so I want you just, I want you to do that. And then I want you to let us know what you did. You can either email Kim or you can post it on our Stonebridge Facebook page. One of those two things. Students, y'all can follow up with David Scott. Everybody else, I'd like y'all just sit quick, just one sentence. It doesn't have to be great. Just tell me what you did so we can see. $20 is nothing. Like, it's not going to make a big difference anywhere. But 20 times 340 people who are here today, that's, that's something. And I want to see where the money goes. And I want to see how the Lord uses it uh, to bless other people. Is that good? Everybody clear? I'd love for you to try to at least try this week. That may be too hard if you're doing something that requires a lot of coordination. But at least try to have an idea this week. We're going to pray. So y'all can close your eyes, and then we're going to close with some ministry. So first we're going to pray about this money that we just grabbed. God, I do thank you that you entrust us with things. And sometimes for us, they matter so much, and then you say, it's nothing. Like, it's, it doesn't matter. And that's, to get our minds around that, not easy. And so my prayer is with this small experiment with $20 that we took out of a bucket, that you would break things in our hearts and that you would grow things in our hearts. For some of us, just the idea of saying, I'm a steward. I'm not an owner. For some of us, it's the idea of saying, God, I'm actually going to ask you, what do you want me to do with this? And I'm going to take a risk to engage another person. Huge for some of us. For some of us, this is Giving money away, it's saying, I'm not a slave. I don't serve money. It's, it's a tool in my tool belt. So God, I pray as men and women and students ask you what to do, that you give us eyes to see. What does it look like to bless somebody? What does it look like to serve somebody? What does it look like to invite somebody in to a relationship? God, we do pray that you would break the power of money in our city. And that people would not be enslaved. It's a terrible God. All it does is demand and it offers so little in return. And so God, I pray over the next week and ten days as we're accepting this challenge and stepping out. That you would again just use these little acts of faith to break the power of money in our own life. And to break the power of money in our city. God, we want to use everything that you've given us. In ways that bring you the most glory. And that bless the most people. No guilt and no condemnation for anybody. We just want to recognize. What does it look like to use what you've given us. Through the eyes of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.